open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, our focus this morning will be on the first half of verse 27 of chapter 1. I'll be reading verses, uh, chapter 1 verse 12 through chapter 2 and verse 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, praise, glory, and honor be to you for what you have done in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what you've purchased for us. Grant us now some sense of the magnitude of your grace to propel us forward with the ambition to live worthy of it. And grant us a right conception of what that would mean to live worthy of the gospel now. (laughs) For The gospel, for the name of Christ, do this, we pray, Father, in His name, Amen. Verse 27 transitions us into the body of this letter, which runs until until chapter 4 and verse 3. So 127 through 4.3 comprise the body of this letter. And what Paul launches into with the body of this letter isn't something unique to find within the body of one of Paul's letters, but it is unique to find at the opening of the body of one of Paul's letters. Paul's standard MO is doctrine first, then application. Again and again in his letters, that's how they work. That's the division of his letters. Almost in half, you can divide most of them that way. Doctrine first, then application. Truth, then commands. With Paul, the theological always undergirds the ethical. And even here, where Paul opens with a command, the theological is simply assumed. The difference is it's, it, it still undergirds what Paul is saying. It's assumed. It's, it's not Elaborated on at length first, but it's implicitly here. Remember that at this time, there are no major theological controversies in Philippi. This letter is occasioned in a, in a different manner than the others were, where Paul is dealing with some problem that he's addressing. Here, the occasion for this letter is that the, Paul is in prison, the Philippians have sent him a letter, and now he sends this one in reply. There's not a major controversy he's dealing with. And you can see how this lends towards many then describing the theme of the letter to the Philippians as the Christian life. What's the theme of Philippians? It's the Christian life. Or as Lloyd-Jones really gets at it, I think, in the titles of his two volumes of sermons on Philippians, the theme of Philippians is the life of joy, volume one, the life of peace. Volume 2. 
So while there are some problems in the Philippian church, there's a bit of false teaching. It doesn't really seem to be happening within the church as it's threatening the church from outside. Those dogs that Paul speaks of in chapter 3 and verse 2. There's a bit of division within, as you can see in chapter 4 and verse 2. There's a bit of opposition from opponents, as we see in our text, or the right near our text, 128. These opponents, again, the idea seems to be those who are outside the church threatening her. Well, we have, a, we have all these kind of things that are involved in this letter, they aren't central. And so this helps you see why Paul can launch straight into a command, but the question remains, why this command? Why open with this command? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I can think of two answers, and you can get to them both through the word only. That word, introducing the body of this letter, I think very well may be the most significant word in the entire letter. That only, the most significant word in the entire letter. What does it mean? What's the intent? Two answers. And I think we can get at the two answers. Think they're represented by two different translations that do a bit more of in, um of interpreting than they do translation at this point. But I think they're, they're interpreting it in a good way. We'll get at that in a bit. So the Christian Standard Bible, instead of only, has just one thing. So taking that and mashing it into the ESV, just one thing, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The NIV if you're going to read the NIV, read the 1984 version. The NIV 1984 has whatever happens. So mashing that in here. Whatever happens, let your life be, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in the former, what I get from the Christian Standard Translation, just one thing is it takes this word only. And leans on it being used for emphasis. Just one thing. Whereas the NIV 84 takes the word only. It's not saying that that's not there at all. But I think it leans into the sense of it being with whatever happens. Using it to connect this command with what Paul has just said. So in one instance, it's more emphatic. With the other, it's more connective. Let's deal with that second sense first. I do think it's critical we understand that verse 27 transitions us into the body of this letter. It doesn't throw us into the body of the letter. In verses 12 through 26... Paul has spoken of what has happened to him and what he expects to happen to him and how that served the gospel. And now he transitions to the Philippians and we're going to see, I believe, again and again, today 
weeks ahead, we're going to see how what Paul has spoken of concerning himself, what has happened and what will happen for the advance of the gospel, is intricately related to what he wants to say to the Philippians and their life and the advance of the gospel. Paul says he wants them to obey this command so that whether he comes and sees them or not, he may hear something of them. So only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come or whether I don't, I hear. Won't get into that much yet. But this reasoning, whether I come or whether I not, you see how that connects to where we've been already, what Paul has been saying. Paul expects deliverance, verse 19. He's has a kind of uh, a, a, a confidence, verse 25, that he will remain on this earth and continue with them for their progress and joy in the faith, in anticipation of coming to be with them so that they would have cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Verse 26. So, whatever happens, pretty confident, but whatever happens, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So only connects all this together. But second, if Paul isn't sure if he's going to live or die, don't you also think then that this only is emphatic? Paul's their spiritual father in the faith. He might die. He's not sure whether he will ever see them again. And so he opens the body of this letter with a command. And it's not just any command. It's emphatic. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When Paul says only here, then, and not only has the sense of whatever happens, but whatever else There's a primacy to this command. A priority to this command. It opens the letter. It comes first because it is first. Matthew Harmon says that this verse provides the thesis for the entire section. Meaning the body of the letter. I think we can go further. I believe this command provides the thesis for the Christian life. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And if that's true, it really leads credence to the idea that the theme of the Philippian letter is the Christian life then. In a sense, you only need this only command. You only need this only command. And Jesus said, that the first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like to it, to love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 
22, 38 through 40. I believe that the command we have in verse 27 is really just another way at stating the same kind of all-encompassing great commandments of love God and love your neighbor. So again, in a way, you only need this only all-encompassing commandment. And do you see then that doctrine underlies this commandment now? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Without doctrine, this command has nothing to stand upon. Let your manner of life, there's the ethical, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's the doctrinal. Without the doctrine, you don't know how to make sense of the command. If you, have, if you, if you, want, to live for the, if you want to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, you need to have some kind of knowledge of what the gospel of Christ is, so that your life then can correspond to that. If you hope to live a life worthy of the gospel, start with this. The gospel. What is the gospel? To better get a sense of it. A bit. Just a bit of the sense of it. And that's all you can ever hope to do in any one sermon. Is to get just a, a bit of the sense of the gospel. To begin to get a sense of of both what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel and a bit of the sense of what the gospel is, listen to 3, 8 through 9. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Everything I've read so far really speaks to living a life worthy of the gospel. Now to what the gospel itself is that undergirds that kind of life. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Christ is Paul's righteousness. Paul has no hope of standing before the holy God of heaven based upon the merits of his own law-keeping. He puts his faith, his trust, his confidence in Christ's righteousness. And inversely, this also means he's trusting in Christ, suffering for his unrighteousness. He's banking on Christ. Understanding that then, Understanding something of the nature of the gospel. Can you see why many who take their Bible seriously at first read of this verse can be troubled by it? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel is the good news of salvation in Christ. The gospel is the good news of salvation by grace, through faith in Christ. The gospel sings, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. The gospel says Christ suffered the godly or the righteous for the ungodly, the unrighteous. So how could we ever be worthy 
of such a thing. This is not a call to merit the gospel. Not even starting from a kind of blank state after your conversion to somehow merit it. Your every act of obedience does not get you closer to being in the black. But only blessedly deeper in the red of the blood of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you live the life spoken of here, you don't pay Jesus back. You get deeper into the depths of His grace. Philippians 2, 12-13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Do you see the same thought happening here? When Paul says, therefore, in chapter 2, He's coming to some kind of conclusion. And then he restates. Whether I'm there or whether I'm not. I think Paul is restating his thesis statement. In chapter 2 and verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure, for His good pleasure. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. This thing that you've received, all of grace, work it out. Not work for it. And as you're working it out, you're doing so based upon this. It's God working in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Your salvation is not a Rachel that you first get and then work seven years to earn. Saints, when you live worthy of the gospel, it's the gospel's continuing work in you. When you live worthy of the gospel, the gospel is this message of grace. And so the life you're living proclaims, magnifies grace, not merit. Worthy has the sense of fitting or becoming the gospel. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, the same kind of language is used there. And the idea of merit, when you look at Matthew 3.8 is seen to be absurd. In the ESV it reads, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The words rendered in keeping, the word rendered in keeping, the word, single word rendered by the two words in keeping, is the same single word that you have rendered here as worthy. The fruit born, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The fruit born doesn't merit repentance. You see how absurd that is? Basically, one thing it would be saying is, repent unto repentance. 
Repent. So repent enough so that you've merited repentance, if that's the way it worked. It's absurd. The fruit born doesn't merit repentance. It demonstrates it. It corresponds with it. It fits it. It's in keeping with it. Other translations then, and what they do at Matthew 3.8, I think are helpful for understanding how we're to understand that word and its use, use in Philippians 1.27. So the Christian standard has consistent, bear fruit consistent with repentance. Put it into the ESV. Only let your manner of life be consistent with the gospel of Christ. Or, NAS, ESV, in keeping, let your manner of life be in keeping with the gospel of Christ. Or the King James Version has meet, meaning fitting, becoming, befit. Only let your manner of life be fitting. Let your manner of life meet the gospel of Christ. What does it mean for our manner of life to become the gospel? There's a lot of depth to plunge into in answering that question. But let's get at it this way. Let's look backward in the context. Then let's look forward. And then let's look immediately right at the command itself. But whenever we look backward, know that we're going to be thrust forward. And whenever we look forward, know that we're going to be thrust backward. So basically, just stick with me as we look all over the place. This only, again, connects us to what's gone before. So is there anything that's come before this command that gives us any kind of insight in what it means to live? Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember, Paul has already said, 121, to live is Christ. So, essentially, in this command in 127, he's telling them to live. He's already told them what it means to live. To live as Christ. And fundamentally, what Paul is saying in, in that is, it's understood, the source of Paul's life is Christ. But Paul's wanting to communicate more than what the source is. He's wanting to communicate the life that flows having tapped into the source of life, Jesus Christ. And explaining what that life looks like, he says that that kind of life, verse 22, is one of fruitful labor. While Paul is in his flesh, to live is Christ means fruitful labor. And what fruitful labor means is teased out by verse 25. It means continuing with them for their joy and progress in the faith. So glean two things from this. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? One, living a life worthy of the gospel means progressing and rejoicing in the faith. Paul wants to continue with them so that they progress and rejoice in the faith. And then he says, but if I don't come, here's why I want to be with you, for you to progress and rejoice in the faith. But if I don't come, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. It's getting at the same thing. But second, Paul is not just saying this, he's actually demonstrating it. 
To see that, look forward. Now, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. If there's any encouragement in Christ, you Philippians, you're in Christ. And if you draw any life from Christ, any kind of encouragement, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, which, how are we united to Christ? By the Spirit. What does the Spirit minister to us? Christ. Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul says, which one will I choose? I'd rather be with Christ. But to remain with you is more necessary for you. Paul continues. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Where does this life of selfless service to the people of God flow from? That kind of mind is yours in Christ. In Christ What does it mean to live in Christ? If you're in Christ, you have this kind of mind. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there is first life in Christ, and then second... This life, this gospel life, not only empowers their obedience, it lays down the template for the shape of their obedience. Christ's death, foundationally and first, gives you life. Then, secondarily, it sets an example for you to tell you what it means to live. To live worthy of the gospel means gospel life flowing in a gospel manner. To live worthy of the gospel means that this river of life that is poured into you then has banks that are shaped by the truth of the gospel that guide that life in the direction which it should flow. That's what it means to live worthy of the gospel. And to live that way does not mean all of a sudden you become a river. It simply means all this life that is yours in Christ then flows as you're a conduit So the gospel of grace is magnified as you live this gospel-shaped life. That's the answer gained by looking back in which we were thrust forward. Now let's look forward and we'll be thrust back. The result of obedience to this command is that Paul will hear something of them. He'll, He'll hear that they're standing firm 
in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So there's a negative. They're not frightened. And there's a positive. They stand firm. Now we're already going to go back. That was far enough forward. Let's go back. Negative. Not frightened. Positive. Standing firm. Do you see how that corresponds to Paul's eager expectation and hope? Verse 20. That he would not be ashamed, but that with full courage Christ would be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. Paul will not be ashamed. There's the negative. Which corresponds to Philippians, don't be frightened. But... Paul will, with full courage, he's assured that with full courage, Christ will be honored. Which corresponds to Philippians, stand firm. To live worthy of the gospel means a life of courage. It means not being ashamed of the gospel. To live a life worthy of the gospel means not being ashamed of the gospel. A life without fear. A life worthy of the gospel is one that says with Paul, looking at these options, to live, Christ. And to die, gain. And then from that liberty and freedom, to walk forward in boldness, without fear, no matter what. That's a life worthy of the gospel. But let's look at the immediate context. It's something you easily overlook. And it is, I think, the biggest thing that unlocks this. You miss it because of the English translation. It does as much good as I think it could be done at this point. But it, it still falls flat. There's this is, this is not a failure of translation. This is just a failure of going from one language to another. Lost in translation. Only let your manner of life be worthy. Manner of life, those three words, are trying to get at a single word in the original language. And you have a little footnote in the ESV to help you get something more of the sense of it. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Is the stricter rendering. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. No neat and easy way to deal with this in English. And the Christian standard again tries to help you here a bit by interpretation. It reads, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It inserts the words of heaven. Are those words warranted, not as a legitimate translation, words aren't there, but as a correct interpretation? The noun cognate, and that's a fancy word that would serve you well to have in your pocket. Cognate meaning that we got this word, and we've got this word, and both of them share the same root. So the noun, a noun cognate of the word you have as worthy, uh, li, uh, um, 
as, as manner of life or as behave as citizens, the same word there you have as a verb is, has its cognate noun form in chapter 3 and verse 20 where Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. So I think it's absolutely legitimate as an interpretation of chapter 1 and verse 27 to say, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy. I think the best way to get it is you have a clumsy hyphenated word because it really does have the sense of live. That's the command. Live. But it's a certain, uh, let, let your heavenly citizenship life Heavenly citizenship life, hyphenated. Or live heavenly citizenship, <laughs> hyphenated again. To live worthy of the gospel means to live as one who is a citizen of heaven. Both of these words have at their root, uh, have as their root the word polis. Think metropolis. It's the same word that Plato used when he, whenever he wrote his The Republic, the city. And you begin to sense with that how they viewed citizenship. It was something that shaped your life. To be a citizen determined your life. Live as a citizen of heaven would do then for what Paul wants to command them. Adding the words worthy of the gospel of Christ, just clarify it, make it more emphatic, more powerful, more potent. But live as heavenly citizens assumes the gospel. John Piper refers to the gospel as the charter or the constitution of the church. The gospel not only makes us citizens of heaven, the gospel informs us what it means to live as citizens of heaven. Remember that Philippi is a Roman colony. And as such, her people would have enjoyed Roman citizenship. They would have counted it an honor. It meant certain privileges. It also meant that they lived in a certain way. But the saints in Philippi confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Far louder than they might even in some measured lesser sense say Caesar is Lord. And if they were brought before the authorities... And they understood that they were to denounce Christ by saying Caesar is Lord. They would not say it at all if they were living worthy of the gospel of Christ. While we should honor the emperor, while the Philippians should honor the emperor as Paul commands elsewhere in his letters. Their life is not only found in Christ. Their life is Christ's. To command. Our allegiance is to Christ. We should live then according to our heavenly citizenship. 
not our earthly one. And any obedience we offer up to any other authority is only offered up as we perceive it to go all the way to the top. And if we can never, if we, if we fail to see how that obedience goes all the way to the top, we will defy any earthly authority. Because our citizenship is in heaven. And Christ is our Lord. How is it that we came by this heavenly citizenship? Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 works it out for us. And I have to read the whole passage, I think, for the weight of how we have this citizenship and the significance of it to really fall on you. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. When you hear that, hear this, not citizens. having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. How do you become citizens of heaven? It happens as you are part of this collective group, the church, the bride of Christ that He purchases with His blood. The church is a heavenly colony on a fading earth. It is the eternal breaking into the temporal. It is a gospel-established colony in the midst of enemy territory. It is a city set on a hill. It is the light of the world. Her citizens... The church's citizens are the saints, the holy ones, set apart, distinct, exiles, aliens, strangers, sojourners on this earth who seek their heavenly country. She's gained her citizenship by the blood of her Lord and His reconciling work on the cross. Live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
you sense, you just begin to sense something of how you only need this commandment. Do you need anything more than that to go forward, to progress in the faith? To rejoice in the faith? Only let your heavenly citizenship be worthy of the gospel. Your heavenly citizenship life be worthy of the gospel. We have blind spots. We're ignorant. We fail to work out the math problem all the way to it some again and again. And so we have all these other commands. In the same way as we fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And so we have these other commands that work that out. We fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we have other commands that spell that out for us because we miss the point again and again. But in essence, we don't need anything more than this command. We just need the grace to understand the depth of these commands. Every other command we'll come across in this letter, every other command that we come across really in all of Scripture is nothing more than a working out of this command. Remember that the Scriptures are given to the saints, the people of God. It's for those who have gospel life to live gospel life. So if you fail to get anything else out of Philippians, only hear this. Let your heavenly citizenship life be worthy, fit, become, correspond to, complement the gospel of Christ. Hear that? Just keep working at it. Ask yourself, does this thing I'm doing right here, this thing that I'm at right now, right here, does this magnify the gospel? Does my way of life, my aspirations, my ambitions, my hopes, my motivation for doing what I do, does it flow from the gospel? Does it draw on the gospel? Does it become the gospel? Does it magnify the gospel? Is it fitting with the gospel? Is it in keeping with the gospel? Saints, labor in love for the joy and progress of the saints in the faith. Stand firm, united, not fearful of your opponents. Live as those whose citizenship is in heaven and not on this earth. Christ is worthy. Remember your Lord. Another way we could get at this command is really this. Live for king and country. You see there the idea of citizenship impacting how you live. That is really, I think, the best way of getting at the significance of what's being conveyed here. Live for king and country. Jesus and heaven. 
Live for king and country. Live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray we sense just a bit of the magnitude of what it means for us to be heavenly citizens. And then, with that honor bestowed upon us completely by Your grace, the grace found in the gospel of Christ, that it would shape our living. That we would live out of that life that's ours in Christ. That heavenly citizenship kind of life. That life that belongs not to this age, but to the age to come. That life that's alien and strange and foreign to this fallen world of sin. A life that is one of holiness and peace and joy in Christ. Father, how comforting that we can cry out for you, cry out for this kind of thing, knowing that the end of it is the magnifying of the gospel of Christ. So we pray this with confidence as your people. You've given us life in Christ. May that life in Christ be evident, magnified in us. For the sake of our Lord's name. In His name we ask this. The name of Jesus. Amen.